0: Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the
1: full message directly after. Hello, welcome to The Last Word. My name is Johnny and I'm joined here today with JD. Good to be here this morning. And my co-intern, Cameron.
2: That's me, shrimp. Cameron in, in English, from Spanish to English, is shrimp.
1: Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> that, that does make a lot more Cameron. sense. Cameron. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, how is y'all's uh, Valentine's Day so far? So far,
0: so good. So far, I'm excited. Sorry. Taylor and I are going to do dinner tonight. And so it's always really fun. Yeah. Nice.
2: Yeah. I like to call it Singles Awareness Day. There it is. I'm not even <laughs> single, but like, I just think <laughs> it is such a Singles Awareness Day. Hey, just I just kind of laugh it. about it, you know? That's awesome. So good.
1: Well, that's not what we're talking about today. Exactly. What are we talking about today, JD? <laughs> We're going to talk about money, everybody's
0: favorite subject. I remember uh, being amazed when I learned that there are approximately like 500 verses in the Bible on prayer, fewer than 500 on faith, and there are like over 2,300 verses in the Bible about how to handle money. Mm. Uh, Now, I realize that bringing up money is the fastest way to make people uncomfortable, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and research even shows that it's actually the thing that causes the most conflict within marriages. Um, But I think that we need to ask ourselves why Jesus himself said more about money than almost any other Mm. subject. And I believe that Jesus talked so much about money because he knew that so much of our lives would revolve around its use. We earn it, we save it, we spend it literally every Mm -hmm. day. Therefore, it's Mm -hmm. crucial that we have a
1: proper relationship with money. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, I got uh, some verses to go with these questions, actually, since there are so many verses. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll help guide uh, mm-hmm. just where these questions might be coming from. So my first one comes from Ecclesiastes 5.10. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. So my question that comes with that is, is it bad to want to have money and be rich? It depends. Um, Largely it
0: depends upon our motivation and our relationship with money. At Crosstalk a couple of Thursdays ago, we talked about the parable of the sower. Mm-hmm. And in explaining the meaning of the seed that's sown among the thorns, Jesus says that it that doesn't say that it's wealth or money that choke out the word. These are not like inherently evil or bad. Mm-hmm. Rather, he says that it's this, the deceitfulness of wealth. Mm -hmm. It's the lie that wealth will fulfill us or bring us meaning in our life. And so let's zoom out here for a moment and just talk about this at the macro level. The free market capitalistic economy in which we all live and participate in is driven by an ever-increasing consumer demand, Mm -hmm. Um, meaning that the the economy only grows if consumption grows. Mm -hmm. So everything that we see, everything that we hear, everything that we read is trying to get us to buy and to consume more, mm-hmm. they're trying to convince us that we need whatever that thing is, and this creates a really, really dangerous dynamic for us. Mm-hmm. What they're really playing off of when they're trying to get us to buy something is fear. Mm-hmm. Um, the dominant economy is is grounded in fear. It's. Uh, whether it's a fear of not having enough or falling behind our peers and our friends, whether it's providing a fear about providing for loved ones or any other number of reasons, fear about money becomes the thing that exerts the most control over many people's lives. Mm-hmm. Now, what's often lost when fear is the primary driver in a person's relationship with money is the realization that true prosperity and thriving cannot be reduced to uh, material prosperity or any index of wealth and income, mm-hmm. right? And this is where a guy, uh, a guy named John Hagee's comment becomes like incredibly pertinent for us. He says that we read the gospel as if we had no money, and we spend our money as if we know nothing of the gospel. It's a really profound, true statement. There's a there's like a failure to recognize, as Ched Meyer notes that economics is ultimately a theological issue. Mm. The way that we spend our money is a theological issue. This is why Jesus says that we cannot serve two masters in the Sermon Mm -hmm. on the Mount, right? Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve both God and money. Instead, he says, we're to store up treasures in heaven. As Jesus tells us, the, the point here is not to reject all treasures on earth, Mm -hmm. or to say that having money is a bad thing or that it's evil. It's to say that we're supposed to work instead at storing up treasures in heaven where rust cannot corrupt nor thief steal. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. It does. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. And so for us as, as people who are college students, and even if before that, like if our families just didn't have a lot of money and we didn't mm-hmm. live comfortably, for, for that person, like, is it bad to want to have money and to be comfortable? Even if like in your mindset, you're like, okay, I'm going to steward this well to the glory of God, but like I want to have like an abundance. And so I'm not stressed and worried like I am right now. Is that a bad mindset to have?
0: I would say no. Mm. I think that um, we all want to be able to provide for our families, to provide for our needs, to be able to save for when something bad happens. But it's largely dependent upon that relationship with money. It's not money itself. Mm -hmm. It's when money becomes our God and Mm -hmm. our idol, and we are pursuing security through the means of money as Mm -hmm. opposed to trusting that God will ultimately provide for us, Mm -hmm. right? I think that Um, growing up without a lot of money or currently not having a lot of money puts Mm -hmm. us in a really remarkable position to trust God. And the desire to to not live paycheck to paycheck or to be able to give our money away or to be able to buy that coffee for our friend is not a bad desire. Mm -hmm. It's just what is the motivation behind that desire? Mm -hmm. Is it for selfish gain or is it to be able to bless others with it?
2: Yeah. And I think even remembering when you don't have a lot of money in this season that you're in that no matter if you have a lot of money or not, it's not even yours anyway. It's all yeah. God's. And it's yeah. all because of what he's given you. And it's because you've earned nothing on your own. Um, absolutely nothing that you have is because of something that you did for yourself. It's all because of God's grace and because of his goodness. Um, and in Philippians 2, 3, I love how it says, it's not a money verse, but it says it can definitely like. Play a part in it. it. Says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And that that applies to everything across the board. Once we know Jesus, and once we start following mm-hmm. him, but I think especially with money, remembering that this thing that you have and something that I think the world and Instagram ads and like TikTok ads are going to yeah. tell you, no, your money is for yourself. Like you get whatever you want, and you don't even have to think about anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. God's word says the opposite, you know? Like we're not called to do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but considering other people more important than ourselves. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I think that like to indicate whether your uh, intentions are good or not, maybe seeing like, okay, do I find my security in how much wealth I have? Mm -hmm. Um, Because for me, I don't know about y'all, but anytime I start worrying about money and start putting all this like pressure on myself on how much money do I have, is whenever I start to struggle with it, I feel like, but whenever I'm like, oh, you know, like God's got me, like, I don't know how it's going to work, but Mm -hmm. God's going to provide. That's the times when I think like God has really just shown up and people just all around me will help out. Um, God just always makes Mm -hmm. a way. I've heard so many times at mission trips and stuff where people are like, I needed (laughs) $1,373.27 to get my plane ticket to go to Africa. And then someone like just walks over and they're like, "I felt called to give you this exact <laughs> amount of money." Like I've heard so many of those stories that it just like blows my mind, and I know God has done the same for me. Um, and so I think that that's a good indicator is like where is your security found in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so sure. looking on the contrary, um, found in First Timothy five eight. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, clearly, we're not very we're not prosperity gospel at all. You know, we're we're super like, let's steer away from that. But someone reading this might take it out of context, might be thinking, like, okay, what does it mean if I can't provide? And so does being poor indicate that I'm a bad steward of my possessions? Uh, The simple answer would be no. With a caveat,
0: of course. As long as you're not struggling financially due to your own (laughs) irresponsible spending of money. Right. If that's the case, then the answer is yes. Uh, But the simple answer is no. If you're living on a budget if you are saving what you can, if you're just making enough to scrape by, if you're giving to those around you, doing what you can to meet the needs of others, that absolutely does not mean that you're a poor steward of your own personal finances. Um, Here's the thing. Poverty neither defines discipleship nor ensures moral purity. Mm -hmm. For possessions in and of themselves will no more bar admission to the kingdom then poverty of itself will secure it. Meaning that being poor doesn't indicate that you're a poor steward in the same way that being wealthy doesn't indicate that you're a good steward. Mm-hmm. Instead, the problem with wealth is that it can lead to a paralysis of the heart in the face of the love of God. What I mean by that is that it places a fork in the road for us. We have to make a choice. Will I serve God or will I serve money? Mm-hmm. Um, And this is where trust is so important. We talked about this really with the last question, but not having a lot of money leads to the temptation to pursue money, which can be incredibly dangerous for us because it becomes an idol Mm -hmm. in our life. Now, reframing this, not having a lot of money actually places us in a position to trust in God and to rely on his provision and his care in our life. And it places us in a position of dependence. And really that dependence is where God wants us to be because it allows him to come through and to demonstrate his faithfulness, whether that is through friends and family giving, or whether that is just at the end of the month, I have just enough. And I don't know how I had just enough, but I just have enough. Mm-hmm. Human comfort, uh, such as wealth, can really distract us and keep us from depending on God and recognizing his provision in our mm-hmm. life. Now, the context of that verse in 1 Timothy 5 is really, really important. Paul is writing. To Timothy, and he's giving him instructions for how people are to care for their family members who are in need. It is instruction about generosity. Actually, it isn't condoning or looking down on not having material wealth, or telling you just to work harder. Paul is saying, "Give to the widow who is in need, and particularly if she is family." Mm -hmm. And so, it's actually framed with generosity language than uh, scarcity language or condoning language about not uh, being successful by the world's standards. Mm
2: -hmm. That's good. So let's say I'm listening to this and I'm like, oh man, I think I am actually a bad steward. Like I, I'm not resourceful with my money. I don't give, I, I spend it irresponsibly on myself and I find myself running out and not knowing what to do. So what would you say to that person who is who feels as though they're being a bad steward with where they're at right now? And like, how, how do we move forward from that?
0: Absolutely. I would start by saying you have to answer the question, what is the Lord of my life? Mm. Is my own personal pleasure, which is pursued through our personal finances, the Lord of my life? Or do I really want to honor and serve God as the Lord of my life? Um, So the first of which is reorienting that locus of control in our life. Mm -hmm. Is it God or is it my personal pleasure? The second piece of that is... um, we can't spend what we don't have. Mm. We can't spend what we don't have. And oftentimes, our, uh, the, the pressure to keep up, the pressure to have certain things or even just our own desires keeps us in a place where we're spending money that we should not spend. Mm-hmm. And so we need to go get help. Ultimately, whether that is Financial Peace University, whether that is a biblical finance study, there are tons and tons and tons of resources out there about biblical finance, and I'm not going to say that any one is better or worse, but I'm just saying we have to then go back and say, what does the Bible actually tell me about how I'm supposed to spend my money? And then reorient our life around those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. It's ultimately taking money off the throne, or not even money, but our own personal pleasure off the throne, Mm -hmm. and saying, God, you go on the throne, and the way that I use my finances needs to glorify you and serve you. Mm -hmm. So that would be the basis, I think, for all of that, is reorienting what is the Lord of my life, Mm -hmm. and then developing the tools that are needed to actually become a good steward of those things. Which begins with not spending money you don't have.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and I totally think that when we're looking at the way we're spending money too, I think we should ask ourselves like, okay, do I feel like I need an abundance of money to enjoy God? Like if you were to take all that I have away, kind of like what you were saying earlier, do I feel like I can delight in the Lord and delight in others without having this excess of money and without putting that on the throne? And I think that's been something that I ask myself um, because for me, I'm like, oh, Self-care, let's go to Target. <laughs> and I can find that to be like my restful yeah. time. Not that it can't be to walk around there, yeah. but just to ask myself, can I can I enjoy God without having the excess of stuff around me? And can I just be with Him for where, for where I'm at and for who he, he is without all of this stuff getting in the way?
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I spend way too much money on just the most ridiculous things. But when it comes to like food and stuff, I'm like, ah, no, I should save. But... Yeah, I think also, you know, after you (laughs) indicate like, is money the Lord of my life? uh, I think money is such a touchy like topic for a lot of people that they don't want to talk about. They're like, I don't want to, you know, bring this up. I don't want to tell them, you know, that I am struggling because it might, you know, bring other Views that they have on me. But really, you just got to be open with someone. Bring them into your situation. Yeah, absolutely. And look for accountability. Totally. You know, because mm-hmm. this person might that's struggling might not really know how to set up a budget or, mm-hmm. you know, where to start. And so involving, you know, your community, some people in your church, some friends that, you know, you can trust to just help you Navigate, you know, how to get back on track with being responsible with, you know, what the Lord has blessed us with. Absolutely. One of the best things you can do, and our good friend
0: Jose is the one who kind of suggested this for the first time that I heard it, is go in, pull your bank statement from the last month, and then put it where you spent every dollar, put it into categories. Mm -hmm. And then that shows us where our priorities are. So mm-hmm. let's go back in. Let's pull our last month's statement. Let's look at, is it shopping? Is it dining? Is it uh, clothes? <laughs> like, where am I spending my money? That's going to tell me where my priorities are. And then letting somebody else into that, like you said, Johnny, then helps us to reorient that so that I might be able to develop a budget yeah. or I might be able to like change my spending habits. And that's really, really important for yeah. us.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And this next question kind of goes, you know, the opposite direction again, and we're going to be talking about generosity. So the verse that I got this from is 2 Corinthians eight three, which says, for they, this is Paul speaking of a church, mm-hmm. for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So Paul is glorifying this church that is giving beyond tithing. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of a two-part question, but how important is tithing and how important is being generous with our money even after we tithe?
0: Absolutely. Uh, tithing is a crucial spiritual practice for every believer.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That That is a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, to use the quote that we talked about earlier, economics is ultimately a theological issue. So that means our personal finances are a mm-hmm. theological issue. And so remembering God in our lives is not just an intellectual act. It's a Mm -hmm. practice of managing money and possessions differently. Mm -hmm. And this is what the practice of tithing is. It's remembering God by giving Him Mm
1: -hmm. back what
0: already belongs to Him. This brings up the concept, we've used the word, but we've never defined it here today. This brings up the concept of stewardship. Now, stewardship is the idea that our money and possessions are not our own. Mm -hmm. They're ultimately a gift from God and they belong to God. Therefore, my use of my money and my possessions should be to glorify God and serve him. It is a spiritual practice in this way. And when money or possessions are viewed as mine without accountability, then they may be used in destructive ways at the expense of the common good, Uh, meaning that we're selfish with our money, very basically. And we don't meet the needs of those around us because we're only concerned with our own needs and wants. But when we take steward a stewardship approach to money, our possessions and our money may be managed well according to the will of the owner, that is God, and they're used then for the sake of others. Mm-hmm. What tithing does is it takes money down off the throne in our life. It places God back on the throne. And when money is taken off the throne as the king and the lord of our lives, it just becomes an object or a tool to be used. The scholar Walter Brueggemann says that when money is no more than an object, when it's lost of its seductiveness, its supreme value, its superhuman splendor, then we can just use it like any other of our belongings, like any machine. And so money then becomes a vehicle through which we give to the work that God is doing in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and that really kind of begs the question, where do we tithe and how much do we tithe? Well, tithing to the church is a great start Mm -hmm. or to a missionary that you have a personal relationship with or even to a ministry that you really deeply care about. Where you give should be framed by where you see God moving and your desire to support that mission is participating in God's mission through your finances. This is one of the really cool parts about uh, ministries that support raise is that when you support a a missionary or a person doing ministry and you give to them on a monthly basis, your act of giving and tithing to them is participating in their mission wherever they might be. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very spiritual practice because you are participating in what God wants to do in the world. Now, in regard to how much in the Old Testament, the Israelites were were to give their first 10%. And that's a really, really great place for us to start. Um, The reality is, if you can give more, give more. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If you can't give 10%, give whatever you can give. Mm -hmm. For example, the the woman who comes and she gives her last two coins. Jesus says that she is far more blessed than the Pharisee who comes and gives his larger amount of money on a regular basis because this woman was giving of the very last of what she has. Mm -hmm. Regardless, it's a spiritual act of giving back to God what is His, particularly when tithing might cause us to ask whether we'll actually make ends meet this month. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in that position, we're trusting that God will meet our needs and that He will ultimately provide for the needs of others through the use of that money that we've given. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely
2: so for for us as crosstalk leaders or for people who are in positions where they they lead in their homes every week and they they may they may purchase food and like mm-hmm. spend time and money and probably like a good amount of money yeah. on providing for people and also like might want to buy coffee for people and, and participate in that we mm-hmm. don't want this to become like following rules and like oh i can't do this I can't do this because i did this or like i can't tithe because i did this so i'm wondering for those who are in this position of okay i i do feel like i give and i tithe to the lord every single Week, it just might not look in the traditional way Mm -hmm. of giving online to the church or putting money in the bucket. What, how do I approach that? Like, do I should I still tithe 10% first, or like, what should my priorities be in that?
0: Absolutely, I think that this is the beauty of the body of Christ because, well, let's use Cyprus for an example. Mm -hmm. There are those within this church body who give incredibly, incredibly generously because they have been blessed. Incredibly. Mm. And so they are able to give of their treasures, their money. Um, For those of us who are crosstalk students, or for those of us who are just getting started as adults, we may have less uh, money, but what we can do is tithe of our time Mm -hmm. and of our talents. And so we give what we're able to give. And if that is our time to serve as a community group leader within Crosstalk, whether that is our uh, buying food to be able to feed our community group each week, that is tithing. Mm-hmm. That is the act of tithing. Uh, what we generally talk about it as is our time, our talents, and our treasures. Mm-hmm. And so money is only a one-third of that. And right. in different uh, seasons of our life, we're going to have more money we're going to have less time
1: mm-hmm. or
0: we might have uh, more talents that we can give and serve but we might not be able to give as much financially mm-hmm. and we might be in a place where we need to receive a little bit more yeah. you know and so i would say that there there shouldn't be a a feeling of guilt because well i'm not giving my 10% in the bucket every week mm-hmm. as it passes through the church Let's reframe this through time, talents, and treasures,
1: and money is just one piece of the way in which we give Mm -hmm. to the body of Christ.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul writes that each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's this also like heart posture that we need to have that we're not like ah, okay, here we go. But like, rather Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, this is good. This is like, this is from God. So this is for God. Like 10% is the least I can give, you know, out of your time, your talents, your treasures. Mm -hmm. Um, And also I do like in response to the question of being generous beyond tithing, um, you know, there's that law out in Leviticus that talks about, you know, with your farmland, like leave out, you know, the edges Mm -hmm. for the widows, for the, you know, people that are homeless. And Mm -hmm. so I think we are called to, be generous and extending that hand beyond just tithing, that we don't just check it off the list and we're like, all right, we're done. Money's mine, time's mine, treasure's are mine. But rather, you know, we need to be caring for the, you know, the foreigner, for the other people as well, just throughout our whole life. Because I mean, you know, none of the money I have is, you know, from me alone, but rather it's God has gifted me everything that I have. You know, I don't deserve any of it. So Mm -hmm. it's like the least I can do, but I think I need that reminder like mm-hmm. every single day. Totally.
0: I think that really the biblical economy subverts the modern economy that that, wow. that is uh, that we see in our world today. We see like the command and we're we're not under the law anymore, but we do see as a biblical value God instituting yeah. for the people of Israel the one the Sabbath rest. So taking a break from work mm-hmm. to give uh, people time to rest, trusting that God will continue to provide even in the lack of their work. We see that there are institutional things such as the law of Jubilee that provide for the release from slavery, that they provide for the forgiving of debts, for land to go back to its original owners. We see that they are supposed to, uh, the gleaning laws, right? And so, yeah, you're supposed to leave the edges of your field. If you harvest something and you drop it on the ground, then you're supposed to leave it for those who are less fortunate. And so, there is definitely a biblical value in giving, Mm -hmm. in providing care and respite for those who are in need. And so, the way in which, obviously, we can't go back to a biblical economy in our world. We we live in a capitalistic world market. So we can't go back and recapture this, but we can reframe the way in which we participate in it. Yeah. And that means, yeah, giving beyond ourselves and mm-hmm. participating in the work that God wants to do in the world and really demonstrating that trust and that care for the other. Yeah. Yeah, that's good.
2: Yeah, and I... I want to just go back to having the community around you who you can have come into those places where you're unsure of how to steward it or what to do and asking for help and asking for prayer for it and also going to the Lord yourself with it. And I remember um, I was in Walmart after church one day with um, my roommate and we had just been talking about how I'd felt more convicted about like tithing. And um, we were walking around and I I saw this quilt that I was like, oh my gosh, like I really, really like love this quilt. Like I need a new bedspread anyway. I think this is so adorable and like, I wanna get it. And she looked at me and she goes, have you tithed yet? And I said, I have not. And that wasn't to guilt me and that wasn't yeah. to make me feel bad, but that was just someone who's in my life and who knows what's what my struggles are and who knows what's going on and who out of love said, Have you done what you have felt convicted to do yet? Yeah. Um, And I think that's just a really prime example of how people in our lives who love God can come alongside us and they can pour into us, not in a judgmental way, not in a way to make us feel bad or guilty or... Yeah, just bad or anything, but to to love on us and to say, hey, I love you. And I know that this is going to ultimately be what pushes you closer to the Lord and is going to make you fall more in love with Him.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we ultimately have to normalize the conversation around money. It's such a taboo topic that we Mm -hmm. don't want to talk about or we can't talk about. But really you have to normalize that conversation because it is a spiritual practice that God wants to cultivate in our hearts, us to be generous givers, to participate in his mission in the world. And that comes first and foremost by being comfortable saying, hey, I need help. Or saying to our friend who we're watching, maybe we know that this might be a poor purchase or that there might be an opportunity to use that money in a way that glorifies God to be able to say, hey man, like, have you thought about this? Mm It's not to make anybody feel bad or to make right. them feel guilty. It's just to participate in the spiritual formation that God wants to accomplish in us through our relationship with money. This has been a great conversation, guys. I, I'm excited for us to continue to talk about things like this. So if you guys would uh, go on to the Crosstalk Guide, CrosstalkTXST.com, there is a button that says, ask a question. Please click the button Shoot us whatever you guys have. We would love to continue to address it on the podcast. And we will see you guys here next week. This is the story of a farmer. And this is traditionally what we would call the parable of the sower. It's, It's one of the more famous parables or teachings of Jesus. And it's a parable. It's a story that's all about soil. It's all about dirt, really. And it is all about dirt and the necessary conditions for a seed to grow. What Jesus goes on to teach us is really that this isn't a parable about soil. It's a parable about our hearts. And so when we talk about the soil, really we're talking about the necessary conditions for our spiritual life to grow and to thrive. For our spiritual life to grow and to thrive. And so Jesus tells this story of a farmer who goes out and he's going to plant his seed. And so he sows this seed in four different kinds of soil. And these four different kinds of soil represent the condition of our heart to receive the word of God in our life. We talked about how Jesus' description of these soils helps us to understand the hard heart, the shallow heart, and the cluttered heart. And each of these conditions of our heart prevent the word of God from taking root in our lives and bearing fruit. But the good soil. The good soil is the heart that is receptive and open to the word of God. And it produces a harvest that is 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold, Jesus tells us. Now, this story, however famous it is, is kind of an anomaly in the book of Mark. Because the book of Mark primarily tells us about what Jesus did. What did he do here Uh, in his time on earth. Mark as an author is far less concerned with the teachings of Jesus than the rest of the gospel writers. Matthew, for example, includes all of these teachings of Jesus that are nowhere to be found in the book of Mark. And so Matthew uh, really focuses on what did Jesus teach? How did he call us to live? Whereas Mark turns this around and he focuses really heavily on what Jesus did here during his time on earth. And today is the epitome of Mark's focus in his gospel. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5. And this chapter consists of three stories. Three stories, and we could spend a week, really, we could spend more than one week on each one of these stories because they're amazing, they're fantastic. They tell us these remarkable things about who Jesus is. But here, when they're read all as a whole, and we're going to take a look at all three stories today, when they're read as a whole, they teach us something that is incredibly, incredibly valuable. So here, Mark is honing in on a very specific theme for us, he wants us to see jesus 's authority and power to bring about restoration and healing in the lives of everyday people. It wants to demonst- Mark wants to demonstrate for us jesus 's authority and power over the things of this world over sickness, over death, over the spiritual powers that exist now one of the, the things that my wife and I have enjoyed the most since she and I got married is is getting the opportunity to partner with couples as they walk through the engagement season. It is the engagement season in particular. I, I think it's the greatest thing in the world. I think it's so much fun because there's so much anticipation about the engagement season. It's all about planning a wedding. It's starting to envision what your guys' life is going to look like with this other person. There are so many things to look forward to, but the most valuable part of the engagement season in my view, is what is traditionally called premarital counseling. Premarital counseling. Now, premarital counseling can sound like this big, terrifying, scary thing, but it really isn't. It is simply helping couples build a foundation in their relationship that will make the difficult parts of marriage easier. So you're building the foundational skills during your engagement that will make the difficult parts that are inevitable in every marriage easier. Now, Taylor and I are currently meeting with a couple, and we're walking through premarital counseling with them. And as a result, a lot of my mental space recently has been taken up with thinking about relationships, relationship dynamics, how do you build successful relationships. And over the past week, really, uh, I've been primarily thinking about what it takes to build trust in a relationship. What what are the key ingredients to build trust within a relationship? Now, trust is something that is absolutely crucial to any relationship. Without it, every relationship will fail. And trust is really, you could say, it's the currency in a relationship. It's the currency. Without trust, nothing meaningful is exchanged between two people. And trust is really unique because it's something that's built over an entire lifetime but at the same moment can be lost in an instant. It's something that is built really, really slowly over the lifetime of a relationship, but is lost with a moment, it's lost with a word, and it's lost with a decision. And so there's a lot of weight that goes into how we build trust within a relationship, which begs the question, well, how do you build trust? How do you build trust? Well, uh, psychologists and counselors say all different sorts of things. Some of them say there are four key ingredients. Some say six, some say eight, some say ten. For me, in reading all of those things and talking to couples and being married myself, it boils down to two key ingredients. It boils down to two key ingredients, and those are actions and they are words. So very, very simple. Trust is built by actions and words. We build trust by being honest and open with our words, in the way that we communicate with another person, and we back those words up with consistent, everyday action. Both pieces are integrally important, but you need to both be able to express, through words, trust, and you also need to be able to back up those words with these ordinary, everyday actions so that somebody can believe what you're saying to them. Now, we build trust In in these two ways, in this, let me just give you an example. Um, If I were to say to my wife Taylor that I love her and that I will choose her every day for the rest of my life, which I do, I love her and I will choose her for every day for the rest of my life. But if my actions do not back up those words, that I love her and that I choose her every day in our marriage, then trust is lost in our, in our marital relationship. And trust is very, very slowly built back over a lifetime together. And here is, here's ultimately, I think, the thing about trust. And I'm going to use an old adage here, but I, but I do believe that it's true. Actions speak louder than words. We can say anything that we want in a relationship, but without the action piece of that, trust will not be built. And that trust dynamic plays out in every relationship. I'm primarily talking about uh, like a romantic relationship, a dating relationship. But this plays out in our families. It plays out with our friends. It plays out with our co-workers. It plays out inside of our churches. All of these relationships that we form require trust. You name it. And this works out in, in, quite frankly, positive and negative ways all the time in our life. We celebrate these moments where where you trust somebody in a friendship, and that trust is reciprocated with faithfulness to you, right? When you trust somebody with something that's going on inside of your heart, something that you're really struggling with, and they are faithful to to keep that confidential, to, to continue to care for you in the midst of that, beautiful, deep, meaningful friendship is built in that place, But all of us also hold on to memories of moments where our trust has been broken by people that we really, really care about. Whether that is familial relationships, whether that is past dating relationships, whether that's friends or in the workplace, even in churches where trust is broken inside of churches, that's where we get church hurt. Well, if we can hold on to this tension between actions and words as the foundational piece of trust, then you can see what Mark is ultimately doing in his narrative. He puts what Jesus did during his time here on earth in front of you. And what he's doing is he's he's relying on Jesus' actions to make a case for who he claims Jesus to be. He's saying, it doesn't matter what I say. I can make all the claims I want. Let me put the person of Jesus in front of you and his actions will demonstrate that you can trust that he is who I'm claiming him to be. When we see these actions, we then come to to a personal knowledge and trust of what Jesus came to do here in his life on earth. And Mark really uses this adage as he constructs his gospel. Actions speak louder than words. Very simply, if you look at the book of Mark, you come to see that Jesus' actions demonstrate his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark claims that in Mark chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And over and over and over again, he's going to put these moments in front of us and we will progressively come to see Jesus' actions demonstrate this identity for us more and more. Now, last week when we left off, Jesus was teaching beside the Sea of Galilee. And at the beginning of Mark chapter 5, Jesus then sails across the sea to the other side. Now, in the Sea of Galilee, one half of it, literally split it right down the middle, just make it a circle. It's kind of like a teardrop shape, but you could just make it a circle. you split it down the middle, one side is where all of the Jewish people live. This is historically Israel. Now, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee are where uh, Gentiles live, so people who are non-ethnic Jews. And so he sails across the Sea of Galilee to the other side, and we're told that this is the land of the Gerasenes. Now, the Gerasenes, it's been debated who they actually were and what this, what this is talking about, but the massively significant part is that Jesus is now going into a place where there are Gentiles, He's not going to the Jewish people here in this moment. And here we're told that he's greeted by a man with an unclean spirit. And we're told that this man was so strong that, that nothing that people could do would subdue him. He lived amongst the tombs, and it said that every time they tried to bind him, he would break the chains. And that every day he would then, uh, every night, it actually says, that he would scream and he would self-harm and nothing that, they, that anyone could do could keep him from doing this. And we're told that when Jesus sees him, he begs him not to torment him because Jesus was commanding this unclean spirit to come out of him. So Jesus comes up to the man and he asks him, what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion because we are many the unclean spirit then begs Jesus to, to not cast them out, but to send them into this herd of pigs that were feeding on a hillside. And so Jesus gives them permission. They leave this man. They enter all of these pigs. And the pigs immediately then take off and they run and they run off the, the cliff to their own death. And so there are then these like sheep herders who, who are watching, who have just like watched this whole thing unfold around them. You go, that was was really, really weird. And so they run back to town, and they tell all of their buddies about it. Like, you're never going to believe what I just saw. There was this guy, he was talking to this demoniac, and you're just not going to believe it, you have to come see him. So all of these people come out of town, they come out to the countryside to see Jesus. And they saw that the man who was demon-possessed is now sitting at Jesus' feet. And it says that he was clothed, and that he was in his right mind. And it says that all of these people who came to see this were afraid of Jesus. And they asked him to then leave. It actually says that they, they plead with Jesus to leave, to, to go, to sail away, to get in his boat and to go to someplace else. So in Mark chapter 5, verse 18, it says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Now at this point in the story, there's there's a pretty dramatic scene change. Jesus gets back into the boat and he sails now from the Gentile side back over to the Jewish side. And as he gets out of the boat, he's immediately greeted by this large crowd of people who are waiting for him as he lands. And in the midst of this crowd, there's a, there's a man named Jairus. And Jairus was one of the rulers of the synagogue, the place of local worship for the Jewish people. And he, he comes to Jesus, and it says that he begs him to come to his house. And he wants him to come to his house because he he's just wants Jesus to lay his hands on his daughter who is sick and dying. So Jesus agrees to go with Jairus that he he will go and he will heal his daughter. And so Jesus begins to walk towards the man's house, but there's just this crowd surrounding him. If you guys have ever been to to a large sporting event, if you guys have ever been to an NFL game or a big college football game, it's like that. You guys know that feeling where you're just surrounded on all sides by people. There's just people pressing in. You move very, very slowly. There are people, it's just, everybody's rude. Like I've never been to a football stadium where it's like, oh, wow, you're really polite and courteous and you allowed me to walk where I was walking. It doesn't work that way. So there's this crowd that's just pressing in around Jesus, and it's at this point that we're introduced to a new character in the story. We're told that there's this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Now, now, scholars and commentators believe that this woman from the language had been suffering from some sort of menstrual disorder. And she'd been bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all of her money on doctors. And she wasn't getting any better. It actually tells us that she was getting worse Now, now some of you guys have been in this situation with your family members. So you know the kind of despair that you feel in a moment where you are sick or your loved one is sick and you go to doctor after doctor and nobody can explain to you what's wrong with you. Nobody can give you any relief. Nobody can heal you of what's going on in your body. And so you get to a point where you're just at your last hope. You don't know what else to do. You don't know where else to turn. And that's where this woman is at. And so she's heard about this Jesus person. She's heard about him. And so she comes up behind him in this massive crowd. And in this last ditch effort to find healing in her life, she comes up behind him and she just touches his cloak. She just touches his cloak, essentially saying, I don't know what else to do, but I've heard about a man who might be able to heal me, so I, I, I'm just going to touch his cloak. It says that she was thinking to herself, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. Mark tells us that at that moment, she was healed, that she could feel inside of her that she had been healed and that she had stopped bleeding at that moment. And then we're told that Jesus feels this power go out of him. He feels this power go out of him. So he says to the crowd, who touched me? Who touched me? And his disciples who were around him were like, what do you mean? Look at all the people. Everybody's touching everybody. How are we supposed to know who touched you? In Mark 5, verse 33, it says, but the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She told him her entire story. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, this woman uh, in Jewish culture would have been ritually unclean. Women who were menstruating or bleeding or people who were bleeding were ritually unclean, which meant that they weren't supposed to be around people. Because if a ritually unclean person touched another person, touched you, then you were then also ritually unclean. You had to go through all of the steps to make yourself clean again. And so Jesus would have had every right in this moment to be upset with this woman because she caused him to now be ritually unclean by touching him. And we initially as readers assume that he is. His question, who touched me, is is stern in nature. It doesn't convey the sense of love or compassion. But what we see is that Jesus demonstrates this great love and care for her, this compassion and empathy. And you can almost feel it coming from deep within him. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease, But we can't forget about Jairus' daughter, who we're told is on her deathbed. It says that while Jesus was still speaking, some came from Jairus' house and told the father that his daughter had passed away. Therefore, there was no reason for Jesus to come to his home anymore. And so Jesus overhears this conversation taking place, and he says to this now grieving father, don't fear, only believe. Don't fear, only believe. And so he continues on his way, and he walks to this man's house with a few of his disciples, and he sees people outside mourning. And he says to him, why are you so sad? Why are you so sad? She's not dead, she's only... Sleeping. And we're told that these mourners then laugh at Jesus. They laugh at him. It doesn't make any sense. No, she's dead. She's not sleeping. So Jesus ushers everybody out of the house except for the mother and the father. And in Mark 5, verse 41, he says, Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means... Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Here is an absolutely beautiful collection of three stories. And the depth of these stories, you could understand just wanting to dwell in one of them to meditate on it, to, to really feel, to enter the scene and to imagine what this would be like. And in each one, the central theme is Jesus demonstrating his authority. He's demonstrating his authority. He commands authority over unclean spirits. He has authority over sickness. And he has authority over the power of death. And when we look at all three of these together, we realize that Jesus has authority over everything. He's been given authority over spiritual beings and all of the forces of this world. And he demonstrates this by performing this series of miracles and and exorcisms with those who are socially outcast, a demoniac Gentile, a woman who is ceremonially unclean, and a child. Which begs the question, who did Jesus come here to serve? The least of these. Jesus came here for the least of these. He says in another place, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. His power is made manifest in our own weakness and his great love is demonstrated in his care for those who are the outsider, the hurting, and the least of these. Each of these instances cause us to to question, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Now, Jesus' authority is is critically important for us to understand. It is critically important for us to stand. But I really want to hone in on the people's responses to Jesus' acts of healing, because really it's a tale of contrasts. The demoniac, first, he begs to follow Jesus in response to what he has done for The woman is told that it is her profound faith that has made her well. And these parents are overcome with amazement that they, that they have received the life of their daughter back. And these are profound reactions to profound miracles done in the lives of these people. And these are contrasted with other characters in the story. The other people, when they saw that the demoniac had been healed, begged Jesus to leave. They pleaded with him to go as far away from them as he could possibly go. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus. They were actually afraid of him. See, the people outside of Jairus' house, mourning, thinking that Jesus couldn't possibly resurrect the dead. And so they laugh at him when he says that she's not actually dead. And all week, I've been asking myself this question as I've read these stories. When I have a loved one who is sick in my life, when I have a medical issue that's going on that doctors just can't manage to figure out, when I've lost someone that I deeply love, and care about, when there are spiritual forces that just want to overwhelm all of the hope that is in my life, do I believe that Jesus can really bring healing and rescue in those areas of my life? Do I believe that Jesus has authority over these Things. That Jesus is actually greater than the things of this world, than my hardship, than my sickness, than the death of a loved one, than my own doubt that's going on, the spiritual warfare that I'm experiencing in my life. Is Jesus bigger than those things? C.S. Lewis famously wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, the mere Christianity that we all have to answer the question, of who we say Jesus is. And he says that there are three options for us in answering that question. The first is that Jesus is a liar. Second is that Jesus is a lunatic. And the third is that Jesus is Lord. So Jesus is either a liar, meaning that he claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, but that is just simply untrue. That he's just leading people on He might be a great moral teacher, but there is no way that he is God. Or he's a lunatic, which means that he's a person who is mentally unwell. He's living in a fantasy land of his own creation because he believes something that he truly can't possibly be. Or, finally, Jesus is Lord. And this is the Jesus that Mark wants to introduce us to here in these stories. This Messiah who, who came to save us all, to restore us back to right relationship with the Creator, God. The Son of God who has authority over spiritual powers and all of the things here in this earth, including sickness and death. Jesus is Lord. And He is greater than all of these things. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says it in this way. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher."